Chapter Four, Part One of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Four, Girlhood of Anna Brangwen, Part One. When Anna was nine years old, Brangwen sent her to the dame's school in Cassite. There she went, flipping and dancing in her inconsequential fashion, doing very much as she liked, disconcerting old Miss Coates by her indifference to respectability and by her lack of reverence. Anna only laughed at Miss Coates, liked her and patronized her in superb childish fashion. The girl was at once shy and wild. She had a curious contempt for ordinary people, a benevolent superiority. She was very shy and tortured with misery when people did not like her. On the other hand, she cared very little for anybody save her mother, whom she still rather resentfully worshipped, and her father, whom she loved and patronized, but upon whom she depended. These two, her mother and father, held her still in fee, but she was free of other people, towards whom on the whole she took the benevolent attitude. She deeply hated ugliness or intrusion or arrogance, however. As a child she was as proud and shadowy as a tiger, and as aloof. She could confer favors, but, save from her mother and father, she could receive none. She hated people who came too near to her. Like a wild thing she wanted her distance. She mistrusted intimacy. In Cassite and Ilkston she was always an alien. She had plenty of acquaintances, but no friends. Very few people whom she met were significant to her. They seemed part of a herd, undistinguished. She did not take people very seriously. She had two brothers, Tom, dark-haired, small, volatile, whom she was intimately related to, but whom she never mingled with, and Fred, fair and responsive, whom she adored, but did not consider as a real separate thing. She was too much the center of her own universe, too little aware of anything outside. The first person she met who affected her as a real living person, whom she regarded as having definite existence, was Baron Skrebensky, her mother's friend. He also was a Polish exile, who had taken orders and had received from Mr. Gladstone a small country living in Yorkshire. When Anna was about ten years old, she went with her mother to spend a few days with the Baron Skrebensky. He was very unhappy in his red-brick vicarage. He was vicar of a country church, a living worth a little over two hundred pounds a year, but he had a large parish containing several collieries, with a new, raw, heathen population. He went to the north of England, expecting homage from the common people, for he was an aristocrat. He was roughly, even cruelly, received, but he never understood it. He remained a fiery aristocrat, only he had to learn to avoid his parishioners. Anna was very much impressed by him. He was a smallish man with a rugged, rather crumpled face, and blue eyes set very deep and glowing. His wife was a tall, thin woman of noble Polish family, mad with pride. He still spoke broken English, for he had kept very close to his wife, both of them forlorn in this strange, inhospitable country, and they always spoke in Polish together. He was disappointed with Mrs. Brangwen's soft, natural English, very disappointed that her child spoke no Polish. Anna loved to watch him. She liked the big new rambling vicarage, 
desolate and stark on its hill. It was so exposed, so bleak and bold after the marsh. The baron talked endlessly in Polish to Mrs. Brangwen. He made furious gestures with his hands. His blue eyes were full of fire. And to Anna there was a significance about his sharp, flinging movements. Something in her responded to his extravagance and his exuberant manner. She thought him a very wonderful person. She was shy of him. She liked him to talk to her. She felt a sense of freedom near him. She never could tell how she knew it, but she did know that he was a knight of Malta. She could never remember whether she had seen his star or cross of his order or not, but it flashed in her mind like a symbol. He, at any rate, represented to the child the real world, where kings and lords and princes moved and fulfilled their shining lives, whilst queens and ladies and princesses upheld the noble order. She had recognized the Baron Skrebensky as a real person. He had had some regard for her, but when she did not see him any more he faded and became a memory, but as a memory he was always alive to her. Anna became a tall, awkward girl. Her eyes were still very dark and quick, but they had grown careless. They had lost their watchful, hostile look. Her fierce, spun hair turned brown. It grew heavier and was tied back. She was sent to a young ladies' school in Nottingham. And at this period she was absorbed in becoming a young lady. She was intelligent enough, but not interested in learning. At first she thought all the girls at school very ladylike and wonderful, and she wanted to be like them. She came to a speedy disillusion. They galled and maddened her. They were petty and mean. After the loose, generous atmosphere of her home, where little things did not count, she was always uneasy in the world that would snap and bite at every trifle. A quick change came over her. She mistrusted herself. She mistrusted the outer world. She did not want to go on. She did not want to go out into it. She wanted to go no further. "'What do I care about that lot of girls?' she would say to her father contemptuously. "'They are nobody.' The trouble was that the girls would not accept Anna at her measure. They would have her according to themselves, or not at all. So she was confused, seduced. She became as they were for a time, and then, in revulsion, she hated them furiously. "'Why don't you ask some of your girls here?' her father would say. "'They're not coming here,' she cried. "'And why not?' They're bagatelles, she said, using one of her mother's rare phrases. Bagatelles or billiards, it makes no matter. They're nice young lasses enough. But Anna was not to be won over. She had a curious shrinking from commonplace people, and particularly from the young lady of her day. She would not go into company because of the ill-at-ease feeling other people brought upon her, and she never could decide whether it were her fault or theirs. She half-respected these other people, and continuous disillusion maddened her. She wanted to respect them. Still, she thought the people she did not know were wonderful. Those she knew seemed always to be limiting her, tying her up in little falsities that irritated her beyond bearing. She would rather stay at home and avoid the rest of the world, leaving it illusory. For at the marsh life had indeed a certain freedom and largeness. There was no fret about money— no mean little precedence, nor care for what other people thought, because neither Mrs. Brangwen nor Brangwen could be sensible of any judgment passed on them from outside. Their lives were too separate. So Anna was only easy at home, where the common sense and the supreme relation between her parents 
produced a freer standard of being than she could find outside. Where, outside the marsh, could she find the tolerant dignity she had been brought up in? Her parents stood undiminished and unaware of criticism. The people she met outside seemed to begrudge her her very existence. They seemed to want to belittle her also. She was exceedingly reluctant to go amongst them. She depended upon her mother and her father. And yet she wanted to go out. At school or in the world she was usually at fault. She felt usually that she ought to be slinking in disgrace. She never felt quite sure in herself whether she were wrong or whether the others were wrong. She had not done her lessons. Well, she did not see any reason why she should do her lessons if she did not want to. Was there some occult reason why she should? Were these people, schoolmistresses, representatives of some mystic right, some higher good? They seemed to think so themselves, but she could not for her life see why a woman should bully and insult her because she did not know thirty lines of As You Like It. After all, what did it matter if she knew them or not? Nothing could persuade her that it was of the slightest importance. Because she despised inwardly the coarsely working nature of the mistress. Therefore, she was always at outs with authority. From constant telling she came almost to believe in her own badness, her own intrinsic inferiority. She felt that she ought always to be in a state of slinking disgrace, if she fulfilled what was expected of her. But she rebelled. She never really believed in her own badness. At the bottom of her heart she despised the other people, who carped and were loud over trifles. She despised them and wanted revenge on them. She hated them whilst they had power over her. Still she kept an ideal, a free proud lady absolved from the petty ties, existing beyond petty considerations. She would see such ladies in pictures. Alexandra, Princess of Wales, was one of her models. This lady was proud and royal, and stepped indifferently over all small, mean desires, so thought Anna in her heart, and the girl did up her hair high under a little slanting hat. Her skirts were fashionably bunched up. She wore an elegant skin-fitting coat. Her father was delighted. Anna was very proud in her bearing, too, naturally indifferent to smaller bonds to satisfy Ilkston, which would have liked to put her down. But Brangwen was having no such thing. If she chose to be royal, royal she should be. He stood like a rock between her and the world. After the fashion of his family, he grew stout and handsome. His blue eyes were full of light, twinkling and sensitive. His manner was deliberate but hearty, warm. His capacity for living his own life without attention from his neighbors made them respect him. They would run to do anything for him. He did not consider them, but was open-handed towards them, so they made profit of their willingness. He liked people, so long as they remained in the background. Mrs. Brangwen went on in her own way, following her own devices. She had her husband, her two sons, and Anna. These staked out and marked her horizon. The other people were outsiders. Inside her own world her life passed along like a dream for her. It lapsed, and she lived within its lapse active and always pleased, intent. She scarcely noticed the outer things at all. What was outside was outside, non-existent. She did not mind if the boys fought, so long as it was out of her presence. But if they fought when she was by, she was angry, and they were afraid of her. She did not care if they broke a window of a railway carriage or sold their watches to have a revel at the goose fair. 
Brangwen was perhaps angry over these things. To the mother they were insignificant. It was odd little things that offended her. She was furious if the boys hung around the slaughterhouse. She was displeased when the school reports were bad. It did not matter how many sins her boys were accused of, so long as they were not stupid or inferior. If they seemed to brook insult, she hated them, and it was only a certain gaucherie, a gawkiness on Anna's part, that irritated her against the girl. Certain forms of clumsiness, grossness, made the mother's eyes glow with curious rage. Otherwise she was pleased, indifferent. Pursuing her splendid lady ideal, Anna became a lofty demoiselle of sixteen, plagued by family shortcomings. She was very sensitive to her father. She knew if he had been drinking, were he ever so little affected, and she could not bear it. He flushed when he drank. The veins stood out on his temples. There was a twinkling cavalier boisterousness in his eye. His manner was jovially overbearing and mocking, and it angered her. When she heard his loud, roaring, boisterous mockery, an anger of resentment filled her. She was quick to forestall him the moment he came in. "'You look a sight, you do, red in the face,' she cried. "'I might look worse if I was green,' he answered. "'Boozing in Ilkston. "'And what's wrong with Ilson?' She flounced away. He watched her with amused, twinkling eyes, yet, in spite of himself, said that she flouted him. They were a curious family, a law to themselves, separate from the world, isolated, a small republic set in invisible bounds. The mother was quite indifferent to Ilkston and Cossete, to any claims made on her from outside. She was very shy of any outsider, exceedingly courteous, winning even. But the moment the visitor had gone, she laughed and dismissed him. He did not exist. It had been all a game to her. She was still a foreigner, unsure of her ground. But alone with her own children and husband at the marsh, she was mistress of a little native land that lacked nothing. She had some beliefs somewhere never defined. She had been brought up a Roman Catholic. She had gone to the Church of England for protection. The outward form was a matter of indifference to her. Yet she had some fundamental religion. It was as if she worshipped God as a mystery, never seeking in the least to define what he was. And inside her the subtle sense of the great absolute wherein she had her being was very strong. The English dogma never reached her. The language was too foreign. Through it all she felt the great separator who held life in his hands, gleaming, imminent, terrible, the great mystery, immediate beyond all telling. She shone and gleamed to the mystery, whom she knew through all her senses. She glanced with strange mystic superstitions that never found expression in the English language, never mounted to thought in English. But so she lived, within a potent, sensuous belief that included her family and contained her destiny. To this she had reduced her husband. He existed with her entirely indifferent to the general values of the world. Her very ways, the very mark of her eyebrows, were symbols and indication to him. There, on the farm with her, he lived through a mystery of life and death and creation, strange profound ecstasies and incommunicable satisfactions, of which the rest of the world knew nothing, which made the pair of them apart and respected in the English village, for they were also well-to-do. But Anna was only half safe within her mother's unthinking knowledge. 
She had a mother-of-pearl rosary that had been her own father's. What it meant to her she could never say. But the string of moonlight and silver, when she had it between her fingers, filled her with strange passion. She learned at school a little Latin. She learned an Ave Maria and a Paternoster. She learned how to say her rosary, but that was no good. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Ticum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tu Jesus, Ave Maria, Sancta Maria, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc en in hora mortis nostre. Amen. It was not right, somehow. What these words meant when translated was not the same as the pale rosary meant. There was a discrepancy, a falsehood. It irritated her to say, Dominus Ticum, or Benedicta tu in Meliorbus. She loved the mystic words, Ave Maria, Sancta Maria. She was moved by Benedictus Fructus Ventris Triesus, and by Nunc et in Horror Mortis Nostre, but none of it was quite real. It was not satisfactory, somehow. She avoided her rosary, because, moving her with curious passion as it did, it meant only these not very significant things. She put it away. It was her instinct to put all these things away. It was her instinct to avoid thinking, to avoid it, to save herself. She was seventeen, touchy, full of spirits and very moody, quick to flush, and always uneasy, uncertain. For some reason or other she turned more to her father. She felt almost flashes of hatred for her mother. Her mother's dark muzzle and curiously insidious ways, her mother's utter surety and confidence, her strange satisfaction, even triumph, her mother's way of laughing at things, and her mother's silent overriding of vexatious propositions, most of all her mother's triumphant power maddened the girl. She became sudden and incalculable. Often she stood at the window looking out as if she wanted to go. Sometimes she went. She mixed with people. But always she came home in anger, as if she were diminished, belittled, almost degraded. There was over the house a kind of dark silence and intensity in which passion worked its inevitable conclusions. There was in the house a sort of richness, a deep inarticulate interchange, which made other places seem thin and unsatisfying. Brangwen could sit silent, smoking in his chair, the mother could move about in her quiet, insidious way, and the sense of the two presences was powerful, sustaining. The whole intercourse was wordless, intense, and close. But Anna was uneasy. She wanted to get away. Yet wherever she went there came upon her that feeling of thinness, as if she were made smaller, belittled. She hastened home. There she raged and interrupted the strong, settled interchange. Sometimes her mother turned on her with a fierce, destructive anger, in which was no pity or consideration, and Anna shrank, afraid. She went to her father. He would still listen to the spoken word which fell sterile on the unheeding mother. Sometimes Anna talked to her father. She tried to discuss people. She wanted to know what was meant. But her father became uneasy. He did not want to have things dragged into consciousness. Only out of consideration for her he listened. And there was a kind of whistling rousedness in the room. The cat got up and, stretching itself, went uneasily to the door. Mrs. Brangwen was silent. She seemed ominous. Anna could not go on with her fault-finding. 
her criticism, her expression of dissatisfactions. She felt even her father against her. He had a strong dark bond with her mother, a potent intimacy that existed inarticulate and wild, following its own course, and savage if interrupted, uncovered. Nevertheless, Brangwen was uneasy about the girl. The whole house continued to be disturbed. She had a pathetic, baffled appeal. She was hostile to her parents, even whilst she lived entirely with them, within their spell. Many ways she tried of escape. She became an assiduous church-goer, but the language meant nothing to her. It seemed false. She hated to hear things expressed, put into words. Whilst the religious feelings were inside her, they were passionately moving. In the mouth of the clergyman they were false, indecent. She tried to read, but again the tedium and the sense of the falsity of the spoken word put her off. She went to stay with girlfriends. At first she thought it splendid, but then the inner boredom came on. It seemed to her all nothingness, and she felt always belittled, as if never, never could she stretch her length and stride her stride. Her mind reverted often to the torture-cell of a certain bishop of France, in which the victim could neither stand nor lie stretched out, never. Not that she thought of herself in any connection with this. But often there came into her mind the wonder how the cell was built, and she could feel the horror of the crampedness as something very real. She was, however, only eighteen when a letter came from Mrs. Alfred Brangwen in Nottingham, saying that her son William was coming to Ilkston to take a place as junior draftsman, scarcely more than apprentice in a lace factory. He was twenty years old, and would the Marsh Brangwens be friendly with him? Tom Brangwen at once wrote, offering the young man a home at the Marsh. This was not accepted, but the Nottingham Brangwens expressed gratitude. There had never been much love lost between the Nottingham Brangwens and the Marsh. Indeed, Mrs. Alfred, having inherited three thousand pounds, and having occasion to be dissatisfied with her husband, held aloof from all the Brangwens whatsoever. She affected, however, some esteem of Mrs. Tom, as she called the Polish woman, saying that at any rate she was a lady. Anna Brangwen was faintly excited at the news of her cousin Will's coming to Ilkston. She knew plenty of young men, but they had never become real to her. She had seen in this young gallant a nose she liked, in that a pleasant moustache, in the other a nice way of wearing clothes, in one a ridiculous fringe of hair, in another a comical way of talking. They were objects of amusement and faint wonder to her, rather than real beings, the young men. The only man she knew was her father, and, as he was something large, looming, a kind of godhead, he embraced all manhood for her and other men were just incidental. She remembered her cousin Will. He had town clothes and was thin, with a very curious head, black as jet, with hair like sleek thin fur. It was a curious head. It reminded her she knew not of what, of some animal, some mysterious animal that lived in the darkness under the leaves and never came out, but which lived vividly, swift and intense. She always thought of him with that black, keen, blind head, and she considered him odd. He appeared at the marsh one Sunday morning, a rather long, thin youth with a bright face and a curious self-possession among his shyness, a native unawareness of what other people might be, since he was himself. 
When Anna came downstairs in her Sunday clothes, ready for church, he rose and greeted her conventionally, shaking hands. His manners were better than hers. She flushed. She noticed that he now had a thick fledge on his upper lip, a black, finely shapen line marking his wide mouth. It rather repelled her. It reminded her of the thin, fine fur of his hair. She was aware of something strange in him. His voice had rather high upper notes, and very resonant middle notes. It was queer. She wondered why he did it. But he sat very naturally in the marsh living-room. He had some uncouthness, some natural self-possession of the Brangwens that made him at home there. Anna was rather troubled by the strangely intimate, affectionate way her father had towards this young man. He seemed gentle towards him. He put himself aside in order to fill out the young man. This irritated Anna. "'Father,' she said abruptly, "'give me some collection.' "'What collection?' asked Brangwen. "'Don't be ridiculous,' she cried, flushing. "'Nay,' he said, "'what collection's this?' "'You know it's the first Sunday of the month.' Anna stood confused. Why was he doing this? Why was he making her conspicuous before this stranger? "'I want some collection,' she reasserted. "'So the says,' he replied indifferently, looking at her, then turning again to his nephew. She went forward and thrust her hand into his breeches pocket. He smoked steadily, making no resistance, talking to his nephew. Her hand groped about in his pocket, and then drew out his leathern purse. Her color was bright in her clear cheeks. Her eyes shone. Brangwen's eyes were twinkling. The nephew sat sheepishly. Anna, in her finery, sat down and slid all the money into her lap. There was silver and gold. The youth could not help watching her. She was bent over the heap of money, fingering the different coins. "'I've a good mind to take half a sovereign,' she said, and she looked up with glowing dark eyes. She met the light brown eyes of her cousin, close and intent upon her. She was startled. She laughed quickly and turned to her father. "'I've a good mind to take half a sovereign, our dad,' she said. "'Yes, nimble fingers,' said her father. "'You take what's your own.' "'Are you coming, our Anna?' asked her brother from the door. She suddenly chilled to normal, forgetting both her father and her cousin. "'Yes, I'm ready,' she said, taking sixpence from the heap of money and sliding the rest back into the purse, which she laid on the table. "'Give it here,' said her father. Hastily she thrust the purse into his pocket and was going out. "'You'd better go with him, lad, hadn't you?' said the father to the nephew. Will Brangwen rose uncertainly. He had golden-brown, quick, steady eyes like a bird's, like a hawk's, which cannot look afraid. "'Your cousin Will'll come with you,' said the father. Anna glanced at the strange youth again. She felt him waiting there for her to notice him. He was hovering on the edge of her consciousness, ready to come in. She did not want to look at him. She was antagonistic to him. She waited without speaking. Her cousin took his hat and joined her. It was summer outside. Her brother Fred was plucking a sprig of flowery currant to put in his coat from the bush at the angle of the house. She took no notice. Her cousin followed just behind her. They were on the high road. She was aware of a strangeness in her being. It made her uncertain. She caught sight of the flowering currant in her brother's buttonhole. "'Oh, our Fred!' she cried. "'Don't wear that stuff to go to church!' Fred looked down protectively at the pink adornment on his breast. "'Why, I like it,' he said." "'Then you're the only one who does, I'm sure,' she said. And she turned to her cousin. 
"'Do you like the smell of it?' she asked. He was there beside her, tall and uncouth and yet self-possessed. It excited her. "'I can't say whether I do or not,' he replied. "'Give it here, Fred. Don't have it smelling in church,' she said to the little boy, her page. Her fair small brother handed her the flower dutifully. She sniffed it and gave it without a word to her cousin for his judgment. He smelled the dangling flower curiously. "'It's a funny smell,' he said. And suddenly she laughed, and a quick light came on all their faces. There was a blithe trip in the small boy's walk. The bells were ringing. They were going up the summery hill in their Sunday clothes. Anna was very fine in a silk frock of brown and white stripes, tight along the arms and the body, bunched up very elegantly behind the skirt. There was something of the cavalier about Will Brangwen, and he was well-dressed. He walked along with the sprig of currant blossom dangling between his fingers, and none of them spoke. The sun shone brightly on little showers of buttercup down the bank. In the fields the fool's parsley was foamy, held very high and proud above a number of flowers that flitted in the greenish twilight of the mowing grass below. They reached the church. Fred led the way to the pew, followed by the cousin, then Anna. She felt very conspicuous and important. Somehow this young man gave her away to other people. He stood aside and let her pass to her place, then sat next to her. It was a curious sensation to sit next to him. The color came streaming from the painted window above her. It lit on the dark wood of the pew, on the stone-worn aisle, on the pillar behind her cousin, and on her cousin's hands, as they lay on his knees. She sat amid illumination— illumination and luminous shadow all around her, her soul very bright. She sat, without knowing it, conscious of the hands and motionless knees of her cousin. Something strange had entered into her world, something entirely strange and unlike what she knew. She was curiously elated. She sat in a glowing world of unreality, very delightful. A brooding light, like laughter, was in her eyes. She was aware of a strange influence entering into her, which she enjoyed. It was a dark, enriching influence she had not known before. She did not think of her cousin, but she was startled when his hands moved. She wished he would not say the responses so plainly. It diverted her from her vague enjoyment. Why would he obtrude and draw notice to himself? It was bad taste. But she went on all right till the hymn came. He stood up beside her to sing, and that pleased her. Then, suddenly, at the very first word, his voice came strong and overriding, filling the church. He was singing the tenor. Her soul opened in amazement. His voice filled the church. It rang out like a trumpet and rang out again. She started to giggle over her hymn-book, but he went on, perfectly steady. Up and down rang his voice, going its own way. She was helplessly shocked into laughter. Between moments of dead silence in herself she shook with laughter. On came the laughter, seized her, and shook her till the tears were in her eyes. She was amazed and rather enjoyed it. And still the hymn rolled on, and still she laughed. She bent over her hymn-book, crimson with confusion, but still her sides shook with laughter. She pretended to cough. She pretended to have a crumb in her throat. Fred was gazing up at her with clear blue eyes. She was recovering herself and then a slur in the strong, blind voice at her side brought it all on again in a gust of mad laughter. She bent down to prayer in cold reproof of herself, 
and yet, as she knelt, little eddies of giggling went through her. The very sight of his knees on the praying cushion sent the little shock of laughter over her. She gathered herself together and sat with prim, pure face, white and pink and cold as a Christmas rose, her hands in her silk gloves folded on her lap, her dark eyes all vague, abstracted in a sort of dream, oblivious of everything. The sermon rolled on vaguely in a tide of pregnant peace. Her cousin took out his pocket-handkerchief. He seemed to be drifted, absorbed, into the sermon. He put his handkerchief to his face, then something dropped on to his knee. There lay the bit of flowering current. He was looking down at it in real astonishment. A wild snort of laughter came from Anna. Everybody heard. It was torture. He had shut the crumpled flower in his hand and was looking up again with the same absorbed attention to the sermon. Another snort of laughter from Anna. Fred nudged her remindingly. Her cousin sat motionless. Somehow he was aware that his face was red. She could feel him. His hand closed over the flower, remained quite still, pretending to be normal. Another wild struggle in Anna's breast and the snort of laughter. She bent forward, shaking with laughter. It was now no joke. Fred was nudged, nudging at her. She nudged him back fiercely. Then another vicious spasm of laughter seized her. She tried to ward it off in a little cough. The cough ended in a suppressed whoop. She wanted to die, and the closed hand crept away to the pocket. Whilst she sat in taut suspense, the laughter rushed back at her, knowing he was fumbling in his pocket to shove the flower away. In the end she felt weak, exhausted, and thoroughly depressed. A blankness of wincing depression came over her. She hated the presence of the other people. Her face became quite haughty. She was unaware of her cousin any more. When the collection arrived with the last hymn, her cousin was again singing resoundingly, and still it amused her. In spite of the shameful exhibition she had made of herself, it amused her still. She listened to it in a spell of amusement, and the bag was thrust in front of her, and her sixpence was mingled in the folds of her glove. In her haste to get it out, it flipped away and went twinkling in the next pew. She stood and giggled. She could not help it. She laughed outright, a figure of shame. "'What were you laughing about, our Anna?' asked Fred, the moment they were out of the church. "'Oh, I couldn't help it,' she said in her careless, half-mocking fashion. "'I don't know why Cousin Will's singing set me off.' "'What was there in my singing to make you laugh?' he asked. "'It was so loud,' she said. "'They did not look at each other, but they both laughed again, both reddening. "'What were you snorting and laughing for, our Anna?' asked Tom, the elder brother, at the dinner-table, "'his hazel eyes bright with joy. "'Everybody stopped to look at you.' "'Tom was in the choir. "'She was aware of Will's eyes shining steadily upon her, waiting for her to speak. "'It was Cousin Will's singing,' she said.' at which her cousin burst into a suppressed chuckling laugh, suddenly showing all his small, regular, rather sharp teeth, and just as quickly closing his mouth again. "'Has he got such a remarkable voice on him, then?' asked Brangwen. "'No, it's not that,' said Anna. "'Only it tickled me. I couldn't tell you why.' And again a ripple of laughter went down the table. Will Brangwen thrust forward his dark face, his eyes dancing, and said, "'I'm in the choir of St. Nicholas.' "'Oh, you go to church, then,' said Brangwen. "'Mother does. Father doesn't,' replied the youth. "'It was the little things, his movement, the funny tones of his voice, "'that showed up big to Anna. 
The matter-of-fact things he said were absurd in contrast. The things her father said seemed meaningless and neutral. During the afternoon they sat in the parlor that smelled of geranium, and they ate cherries and talked. Will Brangwen was called on to give himself forth, and soon he was drawn out. He was interested in churches, in church architecture. The influence of Ruskin had stimulated him to a pleasure in the medieval forms. His talk was fragmentary. He was only half articulate. But listening to him, as he spoke of church after church, of nave and chancel and transept, of rood-screen and font, of hatchet-carving and moulding and tracery, speaking always with close passion of particular things, particular places, there gathered in her heart a pregnant hush of churches, a mystery, a ponderous significance of bowed stone, a dim-coloured light through which something took place obscurely, passing into darkness, a high, delighted framework of the mystic screen, and beyond, in the furthest beyond, the altar. It was a very real experience. She was carried away, and the land seemed to be covered with a vast mystic church, reserved in gloom, thrilled with an unknown presence. Almost it hurt her to look out of the window and see the lilacs towering in the vivid sunshine. Or was this the jewelled glass? He talked of Gothic and Renaissance and Perpendicular, and Early English and Norman. The words thrilled her. "'Have you been to Southwell?' he said. "'I was there at twelve o'clock at midday, eating my lunch in the churchyard, and the bells played a hymn. "'Eh, hey, it's a fine minster, Southwell. Heavy.' It's got heavy round arches, rather low, on thick pillars. It's grand the way those arches travel forward. There's a sedilia as well, pretty, but I like the main body of the church and that north porch. He was very much excited and filled with himself that afternoon. A flame kindled round him, making his experience passionate and glowing, burningly real. His uncle listened with twinkling eyes, half-moved. His aunt bent forward, her dark face half-moved, but held by other knowledge. Anna went with him. He returned to his lodging at night, treading quick, his eyes glittering, and his face shining darkly as if he came from some passionate vital tryst. The glow remained in him. The fire burned. His heart was fierce like a sun. He enjoyed his unknown life and his own self, and he was ready to go back to the marsh. Without knowing it, Anna was wanting him to come. In him she had escaped. In him the bounds of her experience were transgressed. He was the hole in the wall beyond which the sunshine blazed on an outside world. He came, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, talking again. There recurred the strange, remote reality which carried everything before it. Sometimes he talked of his father, whom he hated with a hatred that was burningly close to love, of his mother whom he loved, with a love that was keenly close to hatred, or to revolt. His sentences were clumsy. He was only half articulate, but he had the wonderful voice that could ring its vibration through the girl's soul, transport her into his feeling. Sometimes his voice was hot and declamatory. Sometimes it had a strange twanging, almost cat-like sound. Sometimes it hesitated, puzzled. Sometimes there was the break of a little laugh. Anna was taken by him. She loved the running flame that coursed through her as she listened to him, and his mother and his father became to her two separate people in her life. End of chapter 4, part 1